Okay. Um, can we start? So, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm Kevin Cox. I'm not our patronism. I'm sitting over here. So, uh, I'm one of the organisers of this uh, presentation. Um, the other is Harvey Graff of History and English. Uh, first of all, the materialist principle has to be gotten out of the way, right? the Marxist principle. Before all else, we must reproduce the means of subsistence. In other words, in other words, we gratefully acknowledge the financial support of the Mershon Center and the Colleges of Humanities and Social and Behavioral Sciences. So welcome, Ira. Uh, Ira is currently Ruggles Professor of political science and history, right? so both subjects, at Columbia University. He has an extremely distinguished record. He was at the University of Chicago. He was chair of political science at Chicago. He has been dean of social sciences, I think is it, Ira, at uh, Columbia. Um, he has been extraordinarily productive uh, over his career. Uh, he has eight books to his uh, credit and five that he has edited. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He is, a, he is past president of the American Political Science Association, past president of the Social Science History Association. So we have something quite extraordinary in that presence today. Um, uh, his interests... Uh, his interests, uh, comparative uh, politics, um, urban politics, class formation, social movements. So Ira's work, I think, it always has some kind of radical edge, but it is cross-disciplinary. I'm a geographer. I found his work extremely interesting, extremely stimulating, uh, and I think you're going to find the same. So... Ira is going to talk about the welfare state, I believe, and no. the South, right, or something no. like that. The New Deal. I'll tell you what. The New Deal. It. Okay, so Ira Castles. Thank you very much, Professor Cox. Um, and thanks to Professor Harvey Graff as well for this uh, Generous, whoops, generous and kind invitation. Um, I'm going to do something old-fashioned, although I have some PowerPoint with me. I'm not going to do PowerPoint. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, um, the, the topic of my talk um, is very self-interested, and I'll explain why, um, concerns the American New Deal. I'm finishing a book um, due at the publisher in the fall, uh, called Fear Itself, um, New Deal Democracy in a Southern Cage. Um, and it's that I'd like to speak about. The self-interested part is that comments, uh, suggestions, and thoughts are indeed still welcome because the manuscript is still in my hands and not out of my hands. Um, and many of the things about uh, which I'll speak uh, in declarative sentences still deserve at least small question marks after those sentences. So I'd be particularly keen to get your reactions. Now, of course, why write another book about the New Deal? Um, in, in 1934, um, Charles Beard, 
uh, one of the country's most distinguished historians um, and political scientists, um, uh, wrote a piece that said the, the presses keep churning out excessive numbers of papers and books about the New Deal. Um, and here we are, uh, 75 or so years later, and another book about the New Deal. I took heart from three, as I've been working, from three um, estimable persons. Um, and I just want to read three uh, brief remarks. The first is from uh, Tocqueville, um, Alexis de Tocqueville in 1856, who was at the same distance from the French Revolution as we are from the New Deal, um, wrote the following in his great work, The Ancien Regime and the French Revolution. Today, we are situated at just the right place to best see and judge this great thing. So my first conceit is not that we are, ex well, I hope we're at a good place to see and judge this great thing. But of course, why we might be at a good place um, uh, is itself an interesting question. And there I lean on Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., who was, um, as you know, one of the great historians of the American New Deal, especially his three-volume Age of Roosevelt. 2006, shortly before his death, he wrote the following. When new urgencies arise in our own times and lives, the historian's spotlight shifts, probing now into the shadows, throwing into sharp relief things that were always there, but that earlier historians had carelessly excised from collective memory. So then the question is, are there, can we probe into the shadows, and what might be thrown into sharp relief that had not quite been seen before? And ironically, perhaps, when um, Schlesinger Jr. published his, um, his great volumes um, on the New Deal, the literary critic Alfred Kazin wrote in a tart review um, that uh, uh, Schlesinger had um, not sufficiently um, pointed to, quote, the truth that cannot be fitted in, the jagged edges that would detract from the straight frame and the smooth design. And indeed, we have a smooth design New Deal. Um, it's an estimable picture. It's not wrong either. Roosevelt came to power at a time of uh, intense crisis, uh, especially due to the collapse of uh, global capitalism, and the American collapse was more profound than any other countries. 25% unemployment when um, the president came to power. Uh, the banks were closing. Um, it made the recent uh, Great Recession um, uh, as if not much by comparison. Um, now, uh, and then, of course, by 1936, when the Schlesinger volumes end, um, uh, fear, uh, Schlesinger tells us, had been conquered. The American people believed again in the efficacy of government and, indeed, the economic system uh, for its capacities to produce uh, prosperity under conditions of social peace. And that's the smooth and celebrated design. It's not wrong but I think it's radically incomplete. Now, the, my, presentist, my presentist question about the American New Deal is the following. Um, can democracies, and how can democracies, effectively navigate deep uncertainty 
when crises appear without abandoning constitutional rights and liberal institutions. Um, I won't say explicitly why I've been thinking about that question, but um, any of us living in the United States in the last decade um, would have had to at least become acquainted with this kind of uh, puzzle. It's the puzzle of what Franklin Roosevelt called fear itself and the ways in which fear, in the sense of deep uncertainty, and I'll define it more precisely and analytically in a few minutes, the ways in which fear um, becomes constitutive or can become a constitutive element of democratic politics. And the question then that follows is how can democracies maintain their integrity as constitutional liberal democracies under such condition without paying an undue price? I learned just a moment ago that the atrium uh, in this hall is named for Harold Laswell, one of the great uh, figures in American political science, who um, worried a lot about just that question. And I'll come back to Laswell in a few moments. I also have two subsidiary or secondary questions that um, I've been asking in the book that I'm working on. Um, the second question concerns what um, the origins of what I believe to be something of a hybrid or dual national state that we have. Um, I'll do a shorthand version of what I think. Um, and it's not a terribly original set of thoughts. Think of the Roman god Janus that has two faces, one looking this way, one looking that way, but it's fused. It's one, it's one body, one face, but with two, well, two faces, but one, one head, as it were. Um, we have a, a domestic national state um, that um, some friends and critics both uh, label as a procedural state, a uh, some used to, the most common term in political science was a pluralist state, um, a state that does not have a, a civic, an announced civic purpose of its own. It is a state permeable to the organized preferences, interests, organizations, mobilizations of members of civil society who wish to achieve ends, and the public interest, given that procedures are open and fair, is the product of political competition. There's no a priori public interest. There's a fashioned public interest out of democratic politics. And that's the, the kind of um, work described in the classic political science texts of, of great scholars like David Truman, um, uh, Robert Dahl, um, in his uh, depictions of polyarchy and um, a good many others. And although it faced many criticisms, um, including some I can say that I authored in my own life, um, uh, about the way in which it, this vision of American democracy understates um, the unevenness of access, what E.E. E. Schottschneider, another political scientist, called um, how the, uh, designated as how the um, the chorus sings with an upper-class accent. Um, there's a bias in the system. But the, the positive side of the system, as compared, say, to any dictatorship you can think of or any authoritarian state, is the permeability of politics to preferences and interests. 
Now, this is also a, a state, a side of the state, that has inherent potential pathologies, including the role of money in politics, the uneven degree of access to the political system, um, the ways in which um, uh, the absence of a public interest, as the political theorist Michael Sandel has reminded us very often, the absence of an articulated public interest makes the national state vulnerable to capture by many, many private interests. That's one side of the American state that we have today. The other side of the American state is what might be called, looking outward mainly, uh, might be called a crusading state. That is to say, a national state with a very clear and crisp articulation of public interest. Every president from Roosevelt to Truman to Eisenhower uh, and beyond has articulated an interest in the United States assertively uh, acting on behalf of the values of liberal democracy in the world. Um, and if need be, through military means. Um, this, this assertive state, this crusading state, um, is a state that uh, is almost the inverse of the pluralist state. It's a state that um, is often closed rather than open. It has secret parts as opposed to public parts. Um, it has national security as a as opposed to national democracy as a, as a centerpiece institutional um, uh, demand um, and the like. My second question for my New Deal work is um, how did that dual state develop? Um, in 1929, 30, 31, 32, neither side of that dual state existed. That is to say... The, the federal government was of a scale. There were fewer federal employees in 1929 than U.S. Steel had under employment. Uh, fewer uh, federal employees in Washington than U.S. Steel had in employment. Um, there wasn't enough at stake in the federal government for it to mobilize interest groups, mobilize. Uh, most social movements directed their politics at localities and at states uh, more than the federal government, not to say that there weren't any uh, federal government. And, of course, the, 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 the crusading state um, didn't exist in 1929, 30, 31, 32. Um, we had a puny military. The United States demobilized after the First World War. Uh, in, when Franklin Roosevelt uh, came to office, the United States spent less than 30% of what uh, fascist Italy was spending on military, um, uh, less than, far less than the Soviet Union was spending on military matters, and within a year or two, far less than Nazi Germany was spending on military matters. It wasn't until the late 1930s that we were um, moving into a military and an outward-looking global phase. So I'm looking at the New Deal because I want to understand the modern American state and where it comes from and how it was fashioned. And you'll see in a moment that my emphasis is not on the presidency and on Franklin Roosevelt or, or for that matter, on Harry Truman, whom I include in the time frame, the Truman administration in this New Deal book. He was, after all, the last vice president of Franklin Roosevelt, at first an accidental uh, president. And there was a 20-year period, uninterrupted period, of democratic presidential uh, executive rule um, with only two years of a Republican Congress, the 80th Congress elected in 1946. Um, 
in that period, um, uh, this dual state was uh, fashioned. And, um, I'm, and in, but I don't focus on Roosevelt and Truman as much as on the American Congress. Um, and I'll explain why in a moment. But I look to congressional matters uh, for conceptualizing and figure out, figuring out how that dual state was shaped. And the third, in a kind of nested set of questions I've been asking, um, it's not me, I trust. Um, the, the speech is profoundly musical. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the third question I've been asking um, gets inside the Congress um, but it has a presentist shape. To, I, I want to understand the origins of present patterns of partisanship and polarization in, in the Congress. And in particular, I'm interested in the role of the American South and the relationship between the South uh, and the Republican Party. Today, of course, uh, the Republican Party dominates the South. The majority of senators and representatives from south of the Mason-Dixon line are, um, are, are Republicans. Uh, and, of course, as we all know, um, in 1932, 36, 30, etc., in this whole period, um, there were almost no Republicans to be found in the South. Hill country of Tennessee, yes, in the House, an occasional senator from a border state, uh, most of them elected in the 1928 election when um, Herbert Hoover uh, uh, defeated Al Smith in much of the South because Smith was a Catholic and a wet um, and, and, and so on. But by 1940, there were no Republican senators from the South um, in the U.S. Senate. So we've had a shift, and I'm interested in discovering or at least ascertaining better than I think the literature has when, that, uh, when the fault lines began to change inside Congress. So those are my three questions the fear question, the dual state question, and partisanship and polarization. Let me talk first about fear. Um, Montaigne, 1580, the thing I fear most is fear. Francis Bacon, nothing is terrible except fear itself, 1623. Edmund Burke, no passion so effectually robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear, 1756. Henry David Thoreau, nothing is so much to be feared as fear. And it's likely but not certainly true that it was the Thoreau text that triggered um, Franklin Roosevelt's um, statement about fear itself, which I'll come to in a moment. Now, I'm interested, as I said, in fear um, and democracy. Um, a recent symposium on emergency powers and constitutionalism written in the two years after 9-11, um, so Law Journal wrote, uh, there's no more foundational question than what a constitutional democracy can do to defend itself when confronted with an emergency that has the potential to undermine democracy itself. It was Machiavelli who wrote, in a republic, it is not good for anything to happen which requires governing by extraordinary measures. And it was Lincoln who said, it has long been a grave question whether any government not too strong for the liberties of its people 
can be strong enough to maintain its existence in great emergencies. We cannot have free government without elections. And if the rebellion could force us to forego or postpone a national election, it might fairly claim to have conquered and ruined us. This issue of fear, why is fear, um, as uh, Montaigne put it, the thing he feared most? Why why is nothing terrible except fear itself for Bacon? Um, What is this thing we call fear? So I've been trying to think about fear as an analytical um, uh, uh, concept. And I think we should think about fear generally and in relationship to democracy in two domains, fear as context and fear as motivation. Um, Fear as context. Um, A quite profound work of economics published in 1921 uh, on risk and uncertainty by um, the University of Chicago economist Frank Knight um, made what I think is the most fundamental distinction. He On the one side, there is risk. Life is full of risks. We marry. We take a chance. Um, We buy a stock. We buy a house. Um, We hope they'll go up in value. We hope the marriage will work. We assess probabilities. And we bet. We buy the IBM or don't buy the IBM. We buy the house in this neighborhood or not. Um, But risk, all life, full of risks and, and, and the assessment of risks, takes place um, with the capacity of the actors making the judgment, the capacity or at least imagined capacity to be able to assess probabilities. But deep uncertainty, the kind of uncertainty associated with fear, says Knight, is uncertainty so deep that it becomes impossible to assess probabilities. That's fear. Um, If I walk down a dark street and don't know if I'll come out the other side alive, I'm afraid. Um, If I walk down uh, in New York, my hometown, if I walk down Broadway at 10 o'clock at night and the lights are on and there are hundreds of people on the street, there's some risk I might get mugged, but fine. But if I find the darkest street in the toughest neighborhood and I'm there alone at 3 in the morning, I'll be afraid. Um, And that's a fundamental distinction. So when all these folks talk about nothing's worse than fear, I think that's what they meant. Now, what's so striking to me about the New Deal was the 20-year period of which I'm talking, is that there was an extraordinary layering of circumstances that generated fear. Um, And generated fear because there was no substantive status quo that could be looked to in order to assess probabilities. I hope I said that clearly enough. Example, the collapse of capitalism. One, Imagine one in four of us is out of work and maybe a third of the rest are working part-time um, and uh, there are foreclosures on about 20% of American farms. Um, There are foreclosures, 30% of houses in many places, and you can't get your money because the bank is closed. What public policies should the federal government pursue in such circumstances? There was no status quo that could answer that question. Or 
Think about the rise of uh, not just dictatorships or authoritarian states, but consider the fact that between the end of the First World War and the start of the Second World War, more than 20 constitutional democracies in Europe, in East Asia, in Latin America, utterly collapsed into various forms of authoritarianism and even more a new kind of mass, popular mass dictatorship appeared on the scene, um, uh, including uh, Bolshevik Soviet Union, including fascist Italy, including Nazi Germany, Hitler coming to power just before Franklin Roosevelt. Those dictatorships were different than traditional authoritarian dictatorships. We can debate the meaning of the word totalitarian. That's a very controversial word. Um, but these were mass democracies, uh, sorry, dictatorships that self-consciously were designed to be anti-liberal in the sense of John Locke regimes. Indeed, on the eve of, um, they were regimes designed to mobilize consent on a non-democratic and non-liberal basis. And the most telling feature of these regimes was their utter and complete rejection of legislative politics. Um, Mussolini, one of the first acts in fascist Italy, 1922, was what was known as an enabling act, in which the legislator voted to give all its legislative authority to the executive, to the cabinet. Adolf Hitler comes to power in uh, nine, January 1933. By the end of March, the Reichstag, votes to give all lawmaking power to the cabinet headed by Adolf Hitler. Um, there was a sunset provision only for the first two years, but it, it rolled. Um, the idea of a participatory democratic state, of a competitive electoral state, all of that gone. But there was mass mobilization. Um, on the basis of race and the, and the Volk in Germany, on the basis of the nation in Italy, on the basis of class identities in the Soviet Union. And if you were outside that membership range, your life was at risk. If you were a kulak, um, if you were uh, a Jew, um, if you were somebody whom the regime defined as un-Italian in some deep sense, to end up behind barbed wire or worse. But these new regimes... There was no status quo to fall back on. These were unprecedented. No one had ever experienced such mass consent dictatorships. There was no substantive status quo. There was no substantive status quo for the degree to deal with the degree of violence associated with the Second World War. Even the First War, which was remarkably um, violent and murderous, was nothing as compared to the Second because the second didn't spare civilians uh, in a way that the first largely had. Not completely, but largely had. The killing fields in the First World War were at the Somme or Passchendaele, in the middle of nowhere on the Marne. Um, the killing fields in the Second World War included bombs dropping from the sky, um, destroying whole cities, uh, Dresden, for example, uh, Tokyo, um, and ended with yet another transformation of might, nuclear weapons. There's no precedent. There's no status quo. Um, so the, in each case where there's no status quo, you have fear generating 
emergencies. And fear as context also widens the scope of available models because there's no single fixed model. If, if some view political scientists, you, you, the typical uh, Congress paper will have, say, a line. In the middle of the line, it'll say, or somewhere in the line, it'll say SQ for status quo. And then we look at what's to the right and what's to the left of the status quo and where people's preferences are and what coalitions form. But what if there is no SQ? then the scope of available models widens. And there's also a requirement of speed and the potential for constitutional exceptions so that there can be expedited decisions to deal with fear. So that's fear as context. But fear is also motivation. Um, motivation for individual actors and for group actors. Fear produces anxiety. Anxiety affects rationality and strategic calculations. Preferences can grow more intense under conditions of fear. I'm going to talk a bit about Southerners in the 1940s who fear that the system of segregation might collapse. Their preferences intensify. Just read their rhetoric on the floor of the House and the Senate. It's different in the 1940s than the 1930s. And fear as motivation impels people to think about a widened scope of conceivable models, and it might also produce strange bedfellow alliances and coalitions under conditions of fear that otherwise wouldn't happen. Uh, the United States, for example, um, fearful about both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, um, had quite friendly relations with Mussolini's uh, uh, Italy. Not that the United States loved Mussolini and fascism, but it seemed like a reasonable ally against the other two, if at all possible. Okay, so those are my puzzles and what I want to say about, at least in a preliminary way, about fear analytically. Um, there is, follow me for a second, this is the logic of the book, and then I will, time permitting, take three different snapshots of issues uh, that I want to talk about. We begin, I begin with fear and deep uncertainty. Fear and deep uncertainty uh, goes hand in hand with the undermining of or the absence of a status quo. In such circumstances, a particular group of, of actors become especially important. They're people more or less like us, people who produce policy knowledge. Um, that is, a, if, if when the status quo is o doesn't exist, when the field is open, political leaders have to turn to folks and they say, Professor Beck, do you have an idea? Uh, Professor Graf, do you have an idea? How should we organize the regulation of banks? We haven't done it before. Um, how should we build weapons to... Um, uh, to protect shipping lanes uh, against certain kinds of adversaries? How should we build and deploy nuclear weapons? How should we govern that? A whole set of policy inventions become necessary. And as it turns out, in the teens, and especially the 1920s, the United States gave birth to a new knowledge class that produced policy knowledge. 
sometimes in institutions that had not existed before. The Brookings Institution founded in the 1920s. The Social Science Research Council founded in the 1920s. A whole set of philanthropic <coughs> foundations that chartered research as the Carnegie did with Gunnar Myrdal's uh, work on, great work on race in America. When Franklin Roosevelt was recruiting people to his brain trust and to assist his brain trust, it was out of that world that they came, as well as out of the world of new university departments of social sciences. The American Political Science Association, dated from 1903. Uh, the American Political Science Review, from 1906. Uh, uh, the modern economics profession, the modern politics profession, um, uh, were sources, and a modern legal profession, were sources of policy knowledge that were drawn on in the absence of a status quo. And in this, quote, model of what was going on, my simplified analytical story, uh, which any model is, and we're all modelers, whether we're historians or political scientists, no matter how we do our work, um, I also argue that presidents, Roosevelt and Truman in, this, in these cases, had actually a very small number of preferences with respect to policy knowledge. Franklin Roosevelt did not care whether we used fiscal policy, regulatory instruments, corporatism, planning, uh, or the whole repertoire of potential policies. He wanted to solve big problems, get people back to work, for example. And he wanted to get reelected. So in this model, presidents have only two preferences. Solve big problems, get reelected. That means that Congress is the site of decision about which among the repertoire of possible policies actually gets adopted that under conditions of fear. Um, during, it, during, certainly during these 20 years of the American New Deal. Now, I should say, again, to stylize this presentation even a bit, I think there were five sets of decisions that had to be taken under conditions of fear, or five zones of decision. And each one was deeply vexing. First, how can capitalism be made to work again? Nobody was sure. Second, in this mass society of the 20th century, how could a place be found for the political participation of masses, including when they appear as labor and as working class. Third question, what about might, global power, might in the world, military means, geopolitics? Um, what's the appropriate set of policies, including trade as well as military matters? Fourth. Internal security and civil liberties trade-offs. How to manage those under conditions of fear. And last, this is not in any particular order, questions of membership. Who gets to be a citizen of a liberal democratic regime? What are our immigration rules? What are our rules about race? Um, who gets to participate? Who doesn't? Now, the dictatorships argued... All the dictators argued. I can find you citations from Stalin, from Mussolini, um, uh, from, certainly from Hitler, uh, who argued the reason liberal democracies are dying is because they can't solve these five big problems. And the reason they can't solve these five big problems is because they have legislatures. 
legislatures are divisive. They're partisan. They're corrupt. They're venial. Um, they don't serve a public interest. We, we Stalinists, we fascists, we Nazis, we have unity. Um, we have a collective purpose. Our executives rule, not the legislatures. We solve these problems. We can make, if not capitalism in the case of the Soviet Union, we can make an economy work. We can find a place for labor, sometimes a very repressed place for labor. Um, we, can, we can solve problems of might, build military forces. Uh, we can deal with internal security. We'll build camps. And we can solve the problem of membership uh, by race, by class, by nationality. So the key question in the American case, the where the challenge of the dictatorships lay, was could Congress be a site for solving these big problems under conditions of fear. And that brings me to the next step of the argument. Inside Congress, the deepest source of internal fear in American life was, as in the jargon of political science, was pivotal player. Um, or others would say at least a veto group. And that is the elected representatives of the American South. The South was a racial order an order of white supremacy. Um, in the state of Mississippi, in 1938, I love this data, there were 2.3 million people lived in Mississippi. There were seven members of Congress. None had a Republican opponent. The most votes anyone got for Congress was 11,400. And in six, in five of the seven districts, no more than between four and 5,000 votes. Um, this is not a high-franchise democracy. This is a low-franchise, one-party, all-white um, autocracy. With um, And yet, when those Southerners crossed the boundary into Congress, each one of those people with 4,000 votes got the same vote as the congressman from California who got 128,000 votes or from Massachusetts who got 150,000 votes. There was a Southern pivot in Congress, and therefore much of my attention has been to what were their preferences? How did they change? How did they affect the outputs of the American New Deal? How did they produce, and Congress produce, lawmaking that created a new status quo whose main goal was to reduce fear back to risk? to take deep uncertainty and make it normal uncertainty. Okay, so let me, that's the structure of uh, the argumentation and the frame for data and arguments. I want to read you just briefly from two inaugural addresses. The first you all know probably by heart. I won't even tell you who said it. First of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance, March 4th, 1933. Of course, I'm now telling you Roosevelt was wrong. It wasn't unreasoning and unjustified fear. It had many justifications. And moreover, the justifications grew across this period in terms of global affairs, in terms of military affairs, in terms of nuclear weapons, the Cold War, the Korean War, 
um, and the like. Dwight Eisenhower, inaugural address. I think it's a damn good inaugural address, by the way. And I, I might have even voted for Eisenhower if I'd heard this address. Um, but part of it is, has a kind of apocalyptic language. He talks about um, our country has been in a time of recurring trial. Um, we are in a pilgrimage from, are we in a pilgrimage from darkness toward light? Or are the shadows of another night charging in upon us? Um, he writes how, he really spoke um, of how the domestic problems today are dwarfed by, often created by, questions that involve all of humankind. He talks of the trials of the moment when men's power to achieve good and inflict evil surpasses the brightest hopes and the sharpest fears of all ages. And last, uh, I could go on, but um, if I really went on, maybe someone will ask me in questions. I want to talk about his foreign policy in which he endorses the UN, multilateralism, disarmament, etc. Um, uh, I had a student uh, say to me after reading this in a class, that's a long way from Mrs. Palin, but <laughs> in terms of policy. Um, they, uh, he's a Republican, after all. Um, he says the following, we can turn rivers in their courses, level mountains to plains, disease diminishes, life lengthens, yet the promise of this life is imperiled by the very genius that made it possible. Nations amass way, wealth, labor sweats to create, and turns out devices to level not only mountains but also cities. Science seems ready to confer upon us as its final gift the power to erase human life from this planet. Um, fear itself. So fear itself appears in Roosevelt and in Eisenhower. It's the theme of this period. Now, three issues that I want to deal with in the 20 minutes, 15 minutes, I whatever, 20 minutes I have left. Um, the first is the question of how to deal with the challenge of the dictatorships. Second question is how to deal with the new global circumstances of the United States, called the Laswell question in honor of the space we're in. And third question has to do with the South and its impact, itself a sort, all sources of fear. February 1933, one month before Franklin Roosevelt is inaugurated as President of the United States, the leading journalist in the country, a centrist, and a friend of Franklin Roosevelt's, Walter Lippmann, writes the following. The situation requires strong medicine. The present legislative machine in Washington is incapable of governing during an emergency. The danger we have to fear is not that Congress will give Franklin Roosevelt too much power, but that it will deny him the power he needs. And then he recommended a decision, and I quote Lippmann, this is in the Herald Tribune, to suspend temporarily the rule of both houses of Congress, to limit drastically the right of amendment and debate, to put the majority in both houses under the decisions of a caucus, and give the president for a period, say of a year, the widest and fullest powers under the most liberal interpretation of the Constitution. Now, Franklin Roosevelt, March 4, 1933. What I'm about to read and not the fear itself line was the applause line of the speech. If you see a film of it, it's when the hats were thrown in the air. 
in the event that Congress shall fail to take one of these two courses, that is, approve his legislative agenda, and in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the duty, clear course of duty that will confront me. I shall ask Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power, to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were, in fact, invaded by a foreign foe. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate. They want direct, vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes in the spirit of that gift. I take it. Um, the reports, which I won't spend time on now, <coughs> New York Times and elsewhere the next day said, Roosevelt announces dictatorship. Um, and it wasn't that just the people on the right who accused him throughout the whole of being a dictator. It was his friends saying, we need a dictatorship in the de given the depths of the crisis. Roosevelt, May 7, 1933. This is his second fireside chat. Quote, the members of Congress realized that the methods of normal times had to be replaced in the emergency by measures which were suited to the serious and pressing requirements of the moment. But crucially, and this is, this is crucial, there was no actual surrender of congressional power. Congress retained its constitutional authority. No one has the slightest desire to change the balance of these powers. The function of Congress is to decide what has to be done and to select the appropriate agency to carry it out. This policy has strictly been adhered to. And I think that's accurate. And even though the 100 days, uh, you had people talk about 2,700 pages of health care legislation being passed without people reading it, there were thousands of pages passed in the, in, 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 in the 100 days without congressmen reading it. But, the, but Congress never lost its capacity, and indeed key features of those bills were shaped by Congress, including in the NIRA, the public uh, employment provisions, which Roosevelt didn't want, were imposed on him by, by Congress. So the first issue is, a central issue, um, which provides the context for everything I'm thinking about in writing, is that throughout this period, Congress unlike the dictatorships, the real dictatorships, Congress maintained its central role. And the, the greatest triumph of the American New Deal was just that, that um, the, the multiple layering of fear and crisis did not produce a collapse of constitutional democracy. Second issue, might um, and global power. Now here, the country underwent unprecedented transformations from, as I said before, a provincial backwater to a global hegemon, from a demobilized military to a national security state, um, from conventional weapons to nuclear weapons, from a domestic tiny army to an army based globally, um, including occupying the major powers who'd lost the war, Germany and Japan, from a volunteer army to a conscripted military. Alexander Hamilton wrote the following about democracy and global might. This is Federalist 8. Safety from external danger is the most powerful dictator of national conduct. Even the ardent love of liberty will after a time give way to its dictates. The violent destruction of life and property incident to war, 
the continual effort and alarm attendant on a state of continued danger will compel nations most attached to liberty to resort for repose and security to institutions which have the tendency to destroy their civil and political rights. To be more safe, they at length become willing to run the risk of being less free. Alexander Hamilton. And this was the issue, precisely the issue, that leading thinkers, especially from the late 1930s into the early 1950s, were most concerned with, even obsessed by, in the United States. I brought a lot along. I won't read it to you, but Harold Laswell, just one. The purpose of this article, 1941, his famous article on the garrison state, is to consider the possibility that we are moving toward the world of garrison states, a world in which the specialists in violence are the most powerful group in democracy. In 1953, Robert Dahl, who was famous for his uh, sense that America had an open, pluralist polyarchy, wrote an article on atomic weapons in which he said the military and atomic weaponry is one and growing example of um, a policy arena in which normal democratic politics cannot operate. Um, C. Wright Mills famously, in a controversial book, The Power Elite, 1956, argued that Congress is restricted to middle-range decisions, but the big decisions, dropping a bomb on Hiroshima, for example, uh, fighting the Korean War, they're not made by Congress. They're made only by the president and the executive branch. And indeed, the Atomic Energy Act of 1946 specified that only the president shall have the authority to decide when to build and when to use atomic um, weapons. Now these, this transformation, or set of transformations, raised the deepest and most fundamental questions about um, the character of democracy and of civil liberties. And there I think, whereas I said with respect to the first domain of fear, the question of whether Congress could manage fear, the New Deal emerged wholly successfully. In the second domain, we essentially emerged by creating a sealed off zone, this crusading state, and it's, it's not so visible features. I've been tracing the origins of central intelligence, including um, J. Edgar Hoover fighting it on the grounds of democracy, saying, you, you can't, we're doing this work, and we are responsible to the Attorney General of the United States, who is responsible to the President, but if you create a central intelligence agency, they're going to be responsible to no one but themselves. Um, it's all going to be secret. Their budget's going to be secret. Congress won't know what they're spending, um, and, 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 and so on. We emerge from this period with a very mixed story about how to deal with external fear itself and internal um, liberty. On the whole, civil liberties were maintained, certainly as compared to any of the dictatorships. But one cannot say in an age where not just extreme things like um, the worst of McCarthyism, but also the federal loyalty provisions of the Truman administration, um, the, uh, the barriers put on civil liberties, which were fewer than those that Woodrow Wilson and Congress had done in the First World War. Nonetheless, we end up with a mixed picture about the story of fear and democracy. But that brings me to my final source of fear in American democracy, at least in this talk, and that's the American South and its impact. And I'll take my last 10 minutes to do this. Um, I quote from Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois. This is his 1971 memoir. 
By the time I reached the Senate from Illinois in 1949, the most blatant Dixiecrats or exponents of white supremacy had disappeared from the scene. E.A. Cotton, Ed Smith, and Theodore Bull Bilbo had died, and Pappy O'Daniel had retired. But the determination of the Southerners to preserve their supremacy, while more suavely expressed, was as strong as ever. The glove might be silken, but inside remained the fist of steel, 1949. Now, what was this fist of steel? Well, first, I should say what the South is. The South, in, my count, in most counts, B.O. Key, the great political scientist who wrote about the South, treated the South as the 11 ex-Confederate states. Most congressional scholars have a 13-state South. My South, and I'll tell you why, is 17 states. Why? On the eve of the Brown v. Board decision, there were 17 states in the Union that mandated racial segregation. Mandated it. On the eve of the American Civil War, there were 15 states that practiced chattel slavery. Those 17 or those 15 plus West Virginia, which was part of Virginia, and Oklahoma, which joined the Union in the first decade of the 20th century. So there's a continuity from the chattel slave South to the Brown v. Board, pre-Brown v. Board segregated South. And in 1967, in a famous court case of Loving v. Virginia, um, the court ruled that it was unconstitutional to ban interracial marriage. On January 1st, 1967, there were 17 states in the Union, South Africa style, as it were, that banned interracial marriage. The same 17 includes Delaware, includes Maryland, includes Missouri, includes Oklahoma, includes West Virginia, and not just the Deep South. The representatives of those states were, with scant exception, all Democrats during the New Deal. And they therefore had, if I had my PowerPoint up, I'd put up charts, but I'm not going to do it, um, two dimensions of preferences. The standard left-right dimension of Democrats and Republicans, and on the whole, those Democrats were left of center. They came from a poor region. They wanted, they were underdeveloped. Um, they blamed Yankee capital for their underdevelopment. They wanted federal tax monies and investments and uh, infrastructure from the federal government. They wanted stimulus packages, if you like. But they had another axis of preferences, call it a vertical, which was to protect white supremacy. And when the two clashed, white supremacy came ahead of everything else. Now, I've already said that this was a one-party system, a low-franchise electorate that produced advantages for the South in seniority. Um, they controlled committees. They understood Congress. They had all kinds of legislative tools. Hypothesis A, the weak version, which I believe to be true about the 1930s, the South as a veto player. Nothing passed into law against Southern opposition. 1940s, a stronger claim, a pivotal claim. Everything that passed into law mapped directly onto Southern preferences. Example, two examples. Fair Labor Standards Act, 1938, Taft-Hartley Act, 1947. Fair Labor Standards Act is minimum wage and maximum hours. Franklin Roosevelt won the greatest landslide in American history in 1936. He had the greatest landslide in Congress. He had almost no Republicans. Eighteen Republican senators, I think, were left after the 1936 election. 
He says to Congress, my highest uh, legislative goal is passing minimum wage and maximum hours, just as Obama said about health care. Except Roosevelt had the votes, but he didn't. It failed in the House of Representatives in 1937. Why? Because it didn't exclude farm workers and maids enough to suit Southern preferences. Um, black people in the South were farm workers and maids. Um, 1938, the bill passes after it substantially widens its exclusion of farm workers and maids. The South was a veto group. Um, 1947, Taft-Hartley Act is passed into law over President Truman's veto that radically diminished the capacity of the labor movement. How did, how did it get passed? Because a unanimous Southern bloc votes with the Republicans um, to constrain organized labor. Why? Because by the 19, even though they voted for the Wagner Act, which ex also excluded farm workers and maids, and voted ultimately for fair labor standards, by the 1940s, the South was more anxious about segregation. And labor for them now meant race. It didn't just mean labor. So those are just two quick examples. My third example, which I'll, if I have time, I'll close with, if not in questions. I'm going to say it, even if you don't let, let me say it. Um, has to do with soldier voting because 42 and 44, that's when the Republican Southern Alliance actually begins. But in any way, there was a white Southern consensus about race, and it was those white Southerners in Congress, and here's where I'm ending, who answered the question, how should the five big issues I named be solved? And I'll end by the most stylized CNN headline news way. You got to read the book if you if you want to know the longer answer. What do we do about capitalism? And here's a stylized choice: Do we have more central state planning, which was the dominant answer in 1933, 34, 35? Like TVA is an example of infrastructure planning. National Resources Planning Board uh, had all kinds of proposals. Or do we pr primarily use fiscal and monetary instruments, which are hands-off um, what different industries and sectors are doing? It just creates a macro environment, not a micro set of interventions. That's the first choice. At first, the South liked planning, but then as race became more prominent, they didn't want the federal government doing planning. They preferred fiscal policy, and it was fiscal policy that we got. Now, Republicans didn't like this fiscal policy, so it's a, this is a democratic fiscal policy. But it's fiscal and not planning. Ca um, labor. Should labor be a national class with national clout? Or should it be just a regional phenomenon in the Midwest and the Northeast and parts of the Far West? The South didn't want labor unions in the South. They got Taft-Hartley rule, and the South never organized uh, on a national scope. What about might? Should the United States be recuse itself from the world, be what some called isolationist, or should it engage with the world? Southerners wanted engagement. Um, and some of it was for very estimable reasons about dictatorship. Um, in 1941, the House of Representatives passed a draft conscription by one vote. And if not for an overwhelming southern support of conscription, the United States at Pearl Harbor would have had no army or no arm and not much of a navy. Um, wouldn't have had human power. 
internal order, liberty versus civil liberties. I mean, civil liberties versus order. The South always opted for order over civil liberties and was a, a key feature in this period of the diminution of civil liberties at war. Membership. Should citizenship, membership, and immigration and race be open or closed? They wanted closed. And they got it, including in the Displaced Persons Act of 1948 of uh, survivors of concentration camps. We invited very few to join the American dream, as it were, um, on Southern votes, which I can document but not write now. So last of all, what was the outcome of this story about fear itself? It was a story of a dual state, a crusading state and a procedural state, both of which successfully answered the dictatorships. And even one of them, the crusading, fought the dictatorships. But it also was a state that had long, or an outcome, the, out, the legislative outcomes of the period that reduced fear to risk, transformed class relations in America in a certain way, created a certain place, limited place for labor in American life, prolonged the struggle over race and race relations and segregation in America, and created a circumstance in which the southern wing of the Democratic Party increasingly bolted from the main party. I have one diagram. It's the only diagram. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't have PowerPoint up to show you. It's where There's a dot for every roll call of... Um, conducted in Congress between 1933 and 1953. And there are, just imagine, and end with this imagined grid of four kinds of votes. And this each has to do with how alike the Southerners are voting like other Democrats and like Republicans. When they vote like other Democrats, but not like Republicans, that's partisan voting. When they vote like Republicans and like Democrats, that's bipartisan or cross-partisan voting. Between 1933 and 1943, almost every vote falls in one of those two categories. They're either voting with fellow Democrats or everybody's voting together. But imagine there are two other kinds of votes. Votes in which the Southerners don't vote like Republicans but also don't vote like other Democrats. Those are pure sectional votes. And as civil rights issues came more and more to the floor of Congress, they're voting alone, but in the Senate, voting alone was enough, given the filibuster, to stop all those bills. Lynching bills, poll tax bills, fair employment bills. And then there's a last category of votes. Call it defection votes, in which the Southerners vote like Republicans, and Republicans vote like Southerners, and, not, and neither group votes like, like other Democrats. And that, it's that zone, that quadrant, that begins to fill up in the 1940s for the first time. And that's where you see the origins of the current patterns of partisanship and polarization in America. And the very last thing I want to say is that it's not only because of 9-11 or the world, which we've just seen in New York City, um, that constitutes a world of fear itself. But as President Eisenhower understood, both in his inaugural and in his farewell, famous farewell address about the military-industrial complex, fear now has become, in some sense, permanent. We cannot escape. We could, can't put the nuclear genie back in the bottle. We can't put the global role of the United States back. Um, 
we live now in circumstances of permanent fear, which means that the questions of the relations of fear and democracy are not simply archaic questions about 70 or 80 years ago. They're questions we have to think and rethink and rethink and struggle with um, into the permanent, I hope, permanent future. Um, thank you for your attention. or even barbs and criticism. Professor Beck. Theo uh, Key, who you talked about, uh, the title of his book, Southern Politics and State and Nation. Mm-hmm. You talked, I think, very eloquently about Southern Politics and Nation. But talk a bit about what was going on in the South. Why did mm-hmm. those particular preferences come to dominate Southern politics, even though only certain sections of the South were sections Great question. Did everybody hear that question? Could I say more about the South and what's going on um, uh, in the South? Um, let me just read you some things I didn't have time to, to read. These are just um, um, – this is uh, just two. I have 50 of them here, but uh, the – Charles Wallace Collins, who was the um, – this is an example of the deep southerner. So I want to give you two examples, the, the, the poll. This is a guy who was the um, political and ideological theoretician of Strom Thurmond's campaign, the Dixiecrats, in 1948. It is a well-known fact that no person could be elected to any political office in the South who fails to subscribe to the doctrine of white supremacy. Even the warmest Southern friends of the Negro race do not favor the breakdown of the pattern of segregation in the South. Now, second quote, Mark Etheridge. Mark Etheridge was the editor of the Louisville Courier-Journal, but more important, he was the first chairman of Franklin Roosevelt's Committee on Fair Employment Practices. He was as Southern, a a moderate Southerner on race questions as you could find in national political life, because his job was to ensure that defense industries did not discriminate against black people, which was not the norm. 1942, Mark Etheridge, the leading civil rights person in the federal government, quote, there is no power in the world, not even in all the mechanized armies of the earth, allied or axis, which could now force the southern white people to abandon the principle of social segregation. It is a cruel disillusionment bearing the germs of strife and perhaps tragedy for any of their leaders to tell them that they can expect it or that they can exact it as the price of their participation in this war. So that's a statement about saying there is a consensus across the South from the most reactionary and racist, the Bilbos, um, to the most liberal in a sense. Um, Claude Pepper, a hero of mine, um, liberal uh, from Florida, first a senator, a member of the House, then a senator, um, uh, in 1948, um, when Harry Truman um, uh, endorses civil rights proposals, gives a speech and says, don't misunderstand, there's nothing in what President Truman has said that would end racial segregation. We are opposed to ending racial segregation. So, now, that doesn't mean that there's no um, diversity in the, amongst the politicians in the South. 
Um, indeed, in the soldier voting case that I'll – if someone asks me a next question about it, I'll tell you. Um, the, in, uh, uh, in the soldier voting instance in 1942, a group of southern moderates led by Estes Kefauver um, eliminate the poll tax for soldiers uh, by federal legislation. They were embarrassed by the demagogy of the bilbos and the naked racism. But there was nonetheless across the full spectrum, across these 17 states, you could not find one member of Congress who endorsed an end to racial segregation. Not one. Okay. So the, very, the variation, which is real, has to be put inside this consensus. Now, Key had a hypothesis about why, um, which had to do with, which I'm not persuaded by, has to do with the power of the black belt and plantation elites and so on. But why should the Kefauvers and the Peppers and others um, uh, uh, exceed to that? So I think that's a – let's leave it as an open question about why the consensus, but the fact of the consensus is at least rhetorically stated is unmistakable. Second thing I want to say is temporal. Um, there are uh, – the historian James Cobb has written brilliantly about this. The South in the 1940s is not the same as the South in the 1930s. First of all, the impact of the war is profound on the South, urbanization, industrialization, migration uh, to the cities. All these changes create heightened, not diminished, anxiety about the future of Southern uh, race relations. Um, but more so, two other things are happening simultaneously during the early first half of the 1940s. First, the United States is fighting a war against racist dictatorship, against Nazi Germany. It becomes very hard to talk about why racism is good here but not there. Um, so there's an ideological tension. Um, and then uh, uh, third, the, the, um, there are profound two kinds of uh, – third and fourth, two kinds of profound changes on the ground. Labor was organizing in the South in the, during the war. Um, Three percent, four percent of the private wage labor force in the South was in unions in 1939. By 1945, 20% was in unions. And that's what helps trigger the Taft-Hartley rebellion uh, and, 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 and so on. So there's a kind of internal threat to the system as the segregationists saw it. Um, and then finally, within Congress, and this is something the political scientist Eric Schickler is now doing a lot of good work on, um, Democrats, who some of them now have black constituents in the North, um, some of them have union constituencies that are pro-civil rights. Um, they are off the reservation as far as the Southerners are concerned in a consensus to keep civil rights off the national agenda. And this peaks in 1948 in the Democratic Convention, Hubert Humphrey, the walkout, and so on. The, so the, the, the party that protected segregation is now at risk. The political economy of the South has been transformed and the ideological climate has changed. And in that circumstance, the South becomes more, not less, solid on racial matters in Congress. Okay. Yes? Can I ask how you explain the Southern commitment to defense from the draft through the early Cold War period? Great question. Yes. Um, why is the South so committed to uh, open and global policies? Um, 
start with the political economy. The South was always the key region um, demanding open trade, low tariffs, um, for obvious reasons. It's not an industrial area. People who want tariffs are building industry to compete with Britain or what have you, say, uh, textile mills uh, in New England in the 1890s um, wanted high tariffs so that British manufactured goods uh, were too expensive to buy. But the South, which was trading raw materials, uh, crops, uh, cotton, rice, tobacco, wanted low tariff regime and open trade. And they loved the Reciprocal Trade Act of 1934, which lowered uh, tariff um, uh, bases. If you're going to have an open trading system, you need your shipping lanes protected. Um, You need a strong navy. And the South from early in the American Republic, was the strongest source of support for a vigorous naval presence in both the, first the Atlantic, but also in the Pacific, especially after the Panama Canal um, uh, was built. So you then have a demand. Third, the South was the location for the majority of American military bases. Um, for, For climate reasons, you can train more troops in Georgia in January than in Minnesota in in January, unless you're planning to fight an Arctic war, right? Um, the, uh, and the, um, but moreover, the military was not just for protect trade or the like. Um, the, the, uh, the presence of the American military in the South was the, the South's most important economic development strategy, <laughs> apart from using low wages to attract capital. Um, it was how infrastructure, roads got built, how infrastructure got built, how jobs were created. Um, if you're near Camp Stewart in Georgia, there are grocery stores. There are um, uh, movie theaters that uh, deal with soldiers. This is a dirt poor region. In 1930, only 10%, literally 10% of white as well as black farmers had both electricity and running water in their houses. This is a third world country. Um, and federal investment in the military is damn important to, to their political economy. And last, there are too many reasons here, but the, I think they interact in a kind of configuration. The South was the region of the country that had um, the most, um, call it ethnic in a way, um, affiliation with Great Britain. Um, it was not a, an immig- a Catholic or Jewish immigrant Eastern Southern Europe location. It was a um, Protestant, Anglo-Saxon, British uh, lineage. And especially in the 1930s, there was an identification with Britain in a way that wasn't equally true in Italian Chicago or um, German New York. So if you put all those elements together, the hierarchy of importance might be different for different members of Congress, but that cluster of factors together impelled them to reject isolationism um, and to to insist on an open and assertive role for the United States in the world. I hope that's a satisfactory answer. Harry, do you have a question? Um, you had your hand up. What do you have? Earlier, um, to what extent does what uh, let's know is the national security state become more yes, shaped by national insecurity? To what extent does the national security state, well, get shaped by the national insecurity state? The one-sentence answer is the national security state is all about insecurity. 
Uh, it's about it's about reducing fear to risk. Um, that's even what strategic the, the the bombs and bullets folks in, in in international relations. That's what they do and study, which is how can you take um, what would be uncertainty too deep and too anxious and turn it into to risk, even in a world of nuclear weapons. Mutual assured destruction, for example, um, was created in order to not have nuclear weapons used. And to its credit, nuclear weapons were not used, even though tens of thousands were deployed um, that could have wiped out the Earth many times um, over. Um, So the short answer is uh, insecurity generates this national security state. But the insecurity isn't only military. It was also insecurity about the future of liberal democracy um, and how to protect it against... um, very assertive uh, foes for whom instruments of economics were largely put at the service of military purpose. This was true for Italy. It was true for the Soviet Union. It was true for Nazi Germany, that their political economy was geared towards um, not just economic strength, but military um, uh, strength, well before the American was. Um, And then by the end of the war, the United States emerged in this position where it started to demobilize but quickly discovered it couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't, and we're still living in that in, in, in that world. Yes, I, I wanted to ask um, whether on issues related to any of these five problems that needed solving, were Republican preferences um, dissimilar enough to Southern Democratic preferences so that a more liberal outcome could have resulted if uh, Democratic presidents and Northern Democrats would have pursued um, a coalition or an alliance with Republicans on, on these issues? Ah, um, good, excellent question about the Republicans, and this will allow me to talk about soldier voting. Uh, I'm waiting to do this. Um, I think you'll like what I hear, but the, um, I hope so. But anyway, let me answer the question first. Um, on a left-right spectrum, Um, although by comparison with today's Republican Party, we would think of Republicans as more moderate. And certainly the Eisenhower inaugural makes clear he's not going to roll back the New Deal. That's that's settled. But on every single major vote, uh, that's too strongly put, but on the most significant legislation, like the Wagner Act or the Fair Labor Standards Act, you get overwhelming Republican opposition to the Roosevelt uh, Initiative, and the reason the Republicans were skeptical was, um, say, even appropriately ideological, uh, in the sense of fearing too big a federal role as a threat to liberty, and that was the rhetoric they used. They used that in, in opposing Securities and Exchange Commission to regulate Wall Street. Not that much has changed since. Um, they they used that language um, in terms of labor union rights uh, and, and, and so on. Um, they were pro-civil rights in a way that most Democrats weren't until until the Democrats were splitting on civil rights and then they found an opportunity to be ally themselves with Southerners, but that's another matter. So I think, um, I think a Republican, a liberal Republican Northern Democratic coalition was not available by and large in the simple version of an answer. Um, and indeed, the Southerners most of the time were as or more liberal in our ordinary language than non-Southern Democrats. Um, they were more interested in regulating Yankee capital 
than most Northerners who represented Wall Street um, sometimes. Um, they loved uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, they liked, in the initial New Deal, they liked the NRA and planning and TVA and big spending um, and, and so on, just the things the Republicans didn't like. So I think there was a liberal coalition, but it it stopped where civil rights started. It stopped where labor started in the 1940s. And that's what distinguished that coalition from what might, might have been called the social democratic coalition once labor was out of the, the, the picture. It was more, it was, glo- the Republicans were far more isolationist um, and indeed even more sympathetic to the fascists and, and the Nazis in some, in some, some of them than uh, the Southerners were. Um, and on questions, uh, so that's um, the answer. Now, Soldier voting. I'm going to tell this whether you want to hear it or not. Um, 1942 and 1944, the United States is at war. 1944, we have almost 16 million people under arms. At least in 1945, 16 million people come home. So, um, 42 is a midterm election. 44 is a presidential election. Surely those soldiers should vote. Um, but how can they vote? Take 1944. Fighting 44 election is after D-Day. You've got millions fighting on, uh, uh, you know, in France um, uh, after um, uh, the D-Day invasion. We're fighting on island, remote islands in the Pacific. Um, are they going to get absentee ballots? Um, where would they be mailed? How to, so the Roosevelt administration proposed. I'll just tell you the 1944 version. Um, proposes that every soldier be given a federal ballot. And they could write in um, the name of the candidate they prefer for president, for senator, and for the House, but not for local and state elections, which are the business of the states. The bill that passes is the bill that was authored, not in the Roosevelt administration, but by um, Senator Eastland of Mississippi and Congressman Rankin of Mississippi, whose biggest fear is that black people would vote, including a million black soldiers in the military. I'll just read this. This is from Rankin. One of the most dangerous measures so far, as he's describing the Roosevelt proposal, this is one of the most dangerous measures so far as the welfare and safety of our American institutions are concerned that has ever been proposed to the Congress of the United States. Eastland, quote, our boys are fighting to maintain the rights of the states. Those boys are fighting to maintain, this is an exact quote, our boys are fighting to maintain white supremacy. Our region's soldiers desire more than anything else to see the integrity of the social institutions of the South unimpaired. They desire to see white supremacy maintained. We shall maintain control of our own elections and our election machinery, and we will protect and preserve white supremacy throughout eternity. January 31st, 1944, when the debate first begins on the Roosevelt Bill. But the bill that passes is authored by Eastland and Rankin. And what it does is say, yes, there's a federal ballot, but it will be only counted in states where the legislature votes to accept the federal ballot and the governor signs the legislation. Well, Governor of Mississippi and the legislature of Mississippi are not going to do this. Um, of the 
tens of, of the millions of voters. Uh, 78,000 soldiers in America voted by federal ballot uh, in 1944. And something like 2 million soldiers voted, but they were the ones stationed in America who could get absentee um, ballots. Now, what does this have to do with the Republican question? This is a proposal by the Roosevelt administration. In 1942, I'll, I'll tell the 42 story very briefly, um, the same question arose. How are these guys overseas going to vote? The Democratic Party decides we're not going to split the party on this question. So what do they do? First of all, they don't pass soldier voting legislation until September 15th. Um, the election is the first week of November. To vote, a soldier must request an absentee ballot in 19. Must write to the Secretary of State of the state. I wouldn't know how to write to the Secretary of State of New York, but let alone... So I'm sitting now in some overseas place. Um, the Secretary of State... No, I take it back. Every soldier will be given a postcard that they can send to their Secretary of State. But they have to know how to fill in where the Secretary of State is. Because it's blank. Secretary of State sends them an absentee ballot. They have to mail back the absentee ballot. They have to find the stamp somewhere. Um, uh, then the Secretary of State must submit that ballot to the locality in which the person is voting, and the only people whose votes will count are those who were already certified to vote by that locality, which meant no black people to, at minimum, and not a lot of white people either. 28,000 soldiers voted in 1942 out of millions. Uh, but the Democrats vote unanimously for that, and the Republicans try to embarrass them. This is the Chicago Tribune. This is uh, the last thing I'll read to you today. Um, April 18, 1942, attacking the Democrats for preventing an effective federal ballot. Everyone concedes that the men who are fighting to preserve our American form of government should participate in the elections of that government while they are in service, etc., etc. And look at these Democrats. They're just because they, they have segregationists. Okay. 1944. The Republicans vote nearly unanimously against the Roosevelt proposal and for the Eastland-Rankin version. It's a complete change. Um, why? Well... Among other things, George Gallup said in June of that year, the election is 50-50, Dewey and Roosevelt, except for soldier votes, which are 3-1 to one, um, Roosevelt. So now there's an electoral reason to keep the soldiers from voting. Once the, the Eastland and Rankin bill passes, the white supremacy bill, as they called it, the same newspaper, the leading Republican paper in the country, writes February 5th, 1944, quote, freedom wins. The vote in the House in favor of the bill to give soldiers and sailors valid ballots, this is the segregationist version, was a victory and a magnificent victory for democracy. Okay. Why do the Republicans, should they discover that there is a strange bedfellows coalition possible? Um, and ultimately, it's the same logic that produced the Southern strategy of Nixon later and so on. Nixon wasn't a segregationist. But he mobilized segregationist feeling after the Civil Rights Act um, to help realign uh, the party in, in, in the South. 
In 19, there's a great book, a good book by James Patterson, very good book by James Patterson, the historian on uh, birth of the Republican Democratic, uh, Republican Southern Democratic Coalition. He dates it from 1937-38 in the Fair Labor Standards Act vote that I talked about. I think that's not right. Because if you look at the full aggregate of votes, the Southerners are still basically voting with the administration. But what happens in the 40s is not the Southerners finding the Republican position. It's now the Republicans also looking for the Southern position and joining them as they did on soldier voting. There was no principled reason for the Republicans to vote with the Southerners on soldier voting. There was a partisan reason, an instrumental reason. And you get the making of this shift and this funny combination, just as the Democratic Party had been a strange bedfellows coalition of a, an immigrant union, um, social democratic north with a segregationist south, now you have the making of a new kind of strange bedfellows alliance of the Republican Party, once the party of Lincoln, um, and the southern wing of the Democratic Party, which over time becomes the Republican wing, the southern wing of the Republican Party. Footnote, the key leadership of the Congress in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s was Southern Democratic. The key leadership today of the Congress when Republicans are dominant is Southern Republicanism. And that, that's part of my story about the origins of our time. Good. Join me in thanking Ira. Thank you.